Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Federal Labor Relations Authority has proposed several revisions to rules concerning its duties under the Privacy Act, including duties assigned to the Office of the Solicitor. For more on what's going on and what you need to know, Tom Temin talked with FLRA's solicitor, Thomas So. And it looks like this is more than just a slight administrative cleanup in these proposed rules. What's exactly going on? So it's significant in the sense of three areas for the FLRA. One is to recognize the growing independence of the IG's office. So we want to create in the regulations a parallel system for IG records, inspector general records. So the inspector general could decide instead of the authority deciding the propriety of releasing certain records. I think the second point is due to shrinking budgets and resources and just the trend of centralizing services, we wanted to focus all the requests across the nation with the solicitor's office. It was important not to have sort of each office sending out perhaps inconsistent responses or having inconsistent policies. And the third point is just the increasing responsibilities of the senior agency official for privacy, which is also the solicitor for the FLRA. And so we want to make sure that for all compliance purpose, for compliance, the senior agency official for privacy has a central role in administering the Privacy Act process. And what types of records would typically be concerned with here? That is to say, hearings or decisions that the authority is making that might have personally identifiable information in it? Or tell us about the types of records you deal with. Sure. So a lot of the records that we deal with are internal records, internal HR, and only FLRA employees have records in the system. But most importantly, for the broader audience, we do apply the Privacy Act to the grievance procedure system. So situations when outside current and former federal employees are filing grievance going through our process, we do have an obligation and we take it very seriously to preserve their privacy. And we act as a quasi-judicial body. And it's important for us that people can trust us, that we can maintain their private records in our system. might be useful to review what the FLRA does with respect to grievance, because you've got the Merit Systems Protection Board for some branch of this, and you've got the Office of Special Counsel for another. And sometimes people get lost in the subtleties of difference between the types of things they handle. We manage sort of labor relations, so obligations that occur under collective bargaining. And in these agreements, if employees or if the union feels an agency has violated some obligation that were collectively bargained, that's where the FRA system sort of kicks in, in contrast to the other systems, which are more independent sort of statutory systems. Right. So if there was an EEO type of related claim or a unfair personnel practice outside of what's in those labor provisions, that would not go to the FLRA. In other words, grievances with respect to the clauses in that particular union agreement. There is some overlap in the sense that there are unfair labor practices that may turn on some discrimination or issues that relate to unfair labor practices. But Yes, you're quite correct that there are sort of demarcation of where they should go to if they want to take an EEO claim or if they want to have MSPB claim for unfair personnel practices. We're speaking with Thomas So. He is solicitor of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. And this rule proposal, which would then consolidate IG records under the inspector general and all the other records under you as solicitor and also the chief privacy officer, this in some ways, a response to an executive order going back some years. 
Yes, it's in response to a 2016 executive order and subsequent OMB's guidance that established the senior agency of officer for privacy across the federal government. But it created a lot of flexibility on how it should be applied to different agencies. And so one of the things that we were looking at is how do we fit the SAOP role within a smaller agency like the FLRA? Right. And the seeking of records, is it mostly from FOIA requests or do you get other types of records calls? So mostly from FOIA, and this is one of the other reasons we want to revise the regulations, we also had to revise the FOIA regulations to update that. So they mostly work in tandem, and we use similar systems to process sort of these records. So oftentimes people outside who might want to look at their own grievance information was included in their grievance records, they will have a privacy and a FOIA request at the same time. So in many ways, you're the top FOIA officer now, as well as the privacy officer. This is why the centralization of roles, once SAOP became very important in a federal government, and once we took on sort of the chief FOIA officer role within FLRA, it it made sense to then start centralizing the regulations with the Office of the Solicitor and becoming one conduit where people can ask questions. Now, are there any changes in the criteria for what constitutes privacy-related material that cannot be released? We have tried to maintain sort of the similar system, but merely streamline our processes to make sure that people understand that the office solicitor is not taking the central role. We also tried to create more explicit sort of ways in which you can get in contact with me. For example, creating an email box in the regulation so they can directly contact the office and explicit procedures and how you can get accountings of who we've given the records to. And with respect to the content of the records, you don't want to be the person who decides what it is that can be released and not released, and also the person who decides whether something can be released. In other words, shouldn't there be some separation between the policy on privacy and the execution of the policy. The policy itself goes through, this is why we need a regulation, it goes through notice and comment, and it goes through the the whole agency has to approve of the general regulations and our general policy. We take the responsibility of looking at each record and ensuring that, you know, we're redacting all the records for PII, and that takes a lot of the work and a legal analysis to determine whether something has to be redacted or not. And do you do that yourself? Do you have a contractor that maybe executes the redactions, even though it's not really a contractor's role to decide? what's redacted. But how do you get all that work done? It is becoming uh, more and more difficult as it's easier to file for a request given everything's electronic nowadays, our Privacy Act request. But we have a staff of two other attorneys and all three of us take a share in the responsibilities. In a small agency, when resources are limited, we all have to take on a role and our share of, of the burden. And how many FOIA and records requests come in? What's the volume that you get in a given year? So I don't have that off the top of my head, but we do have FOIA reports online that report to the DOJ, which are all public information, and we're about ready to file our annual report. We do get quite a few requests every year. Order of magnitude, is it tens, hundreds, thousands, or ten thousands? In the hundreds, but I think what I've seen, it's been increasing over the years. And does it tend to ebb and flow with where a particular agency's labor relations contract negotiations are going? In other words, some of these recently settled contracts have been years in the making, and now that they're settled, are people finding grievances? So a lot of the FOIA requests, uh, so we're talking about FOIA requests, less Privacy Act requests. So a lot of the FOIA requests are from outside parties, news media, 
every time there's perhaps a story in the news, there's a FOIA request to follow up to get more information about those requests. And since it's so easy to now file FOIA requests, many more news organizations, I think, are getting involved in filing requests every time there's a news article. Yeah, I'm sure we have, too. And by the way, does the solicitor do when you're not handling all of the FOIA and privacy requests? So my primary job is to represent the FLRA in court to defend our decisions in the D.C. Circuit in the Court of Appeals. Thomas So is solicitor of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. We'll post this interview along with a link to the proposed rule updates at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking. 
that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent, new thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people 
have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. 
This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.